I, you know, I, I think the understanding that you can be competent and be vulnerable at the same time is really the key. I don't know about you, but when I walk into a room full of strangers, whether it's a cocktail party, a business meeting, a large event, whatever it may be, I'm not the most comfortable person in the world. In fact, for years, it's pretty much terrified me. And for a long time, I also thought that maybe there was something wrong with me because of that. You know, the world teaches us that if that's your orientation, you know, the thing you need to do is fix it and learn how to be the person where you walk into a room and all of a sudden you are lit up and everyone swarms around you. Well, a couple of years back, today's guest, Susan Cain, released a book named Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. And it profoundly changed my life, but it also gave voice and gave validation and gave understanding and a path to nearly a third of the human population who has lived feeling like something is wrong with them. Today's conversation goes deep into this phenomenon, into the exploration, into what led Susan to actually do this and to where she's going with it now that she's gotten such a stunning response to the ideas in the book. I'm Jonathan Fields. This is Good Life Project. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once, it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I was trying to remember. Um, quiet came out, when was it? In 2012. Right. So yeah. you and I were hanging out at a cafe on the Upper West Side, on the upstairs, and this was like a couple of months before the book came out, and we were just sitting there like jamming back and forth, what's going to happen with the book, what did you market it, like how do, like, how do you actually get, and there was and there was this moment where I was just kind of like, this is an astonishing book. Um, we can talk about all this stuff, but it's just like you're giving voice to a third of like the population that's been told there's something wrong with them. And it's beautifully written. And I honestly, you know, I was like, I don't know if you're going to have to do more than that. And then the book hits and it just explodes into the published consciousness. Were you ready for that? Like, did you, did you in your, in your, did you think that that would happen or did you think there's a chance that that might actually happen? Oh gosh. You know, it's funny. I remember sitting with you that day at the cafe yeah. and I remember thinking, Oh, it's really nice that Jonathan thinks that that will just happen. But, <laughs> you know, but, but who I, is he? <laughs> no, not, not who's he, but like I was, I was very happy that you did, but I couldn't quite believe it, you yeah. know? Um, and I certainly knew that my publisher had those hopes yeah. for it. You know, they had said that from the very beginning, but, but they too, at the same time that they had those hopes, everybody really understood that it was up to the publishing gods, um, for, it to really ignite, you know, and catch flame. So yeah. I guess I had moments of thinking about it, but not really. And I could never have foreseen, um, you know, just the groundswell and like the, the, the depth and vastness of the emotion of the response. I couldn't really have understood in advance. Yeah. What, what yeah. was when you saw that start to happen? Um, I just, how did you handle it? personally 
because you're up until that point, you're like a pretty private person. You know, you're, a, and you wrote the book when, and it's largely, there are large parts of it which are, which are about you. You know, you're somebody who's, um, and we'll get into defining or, you know, like the, the terms of introversion and, and stuff like that. But, um, and, and you were not only like thrust into the spotlight in a huge and very abrupt way, but, um, but did you also, I, so I'm curious how you handled that. Um, but I'm also curious at the same time whether, whether the nature of the conversation, um, sort of like cultivated a sense of, of responsibility with you or whether you're just like, I just put this into the world. You guys do with it what you need to do. Oh yeah. No, I definitely felt a huge sense of responsibility. And, um, you know, it's really been a process because when the book first came out, you know, literally on the very first day on publication date, which I think was January 12th or something, um, I had 21 radio interviews that day. Oh, and my God. and I, I began the day at like six in the morning going yeah. on um, CBS this morning, you know, and then moved from the TV studio to the satellite radio place right, and did right. my 21 radio interviews. So, you know, and, and as you say, before that, I had spent the previous seven years in kind of splendid solitude, just writing. Yeah. Um, you know, I didn't even need a calendar during those years because I just wasn't even really booking anything. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I gave birth to my two kids. Um, right. I was completely involved in my home and in writing and that w- had been my world. Um, so, so yeah, so it was, it was actually a huge and rude shock to suddenly be out in the spotlight like that. And I, I actually remember saying at the time, you know, I think this is probably taking a few months off of my life on it. I'm just being completely honest. Yeah. You know, it was very stressful. It was, it was exciting. It was amazing. It was a dream come true in many ways. And it was also incredibly stressful for me. Um, but now I've gotten to the point where, you know, I'm out in the media or doing talks or whatever, and I don't even really think about it in terms of stress. Cause I'm just completely desensitized to the negative aspect of it. And I'm really mostly just feeding off of the passion mm. for what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, and it's yeah. so interesting too, because, um, yeah, so I guess a certain amount of that is trainable. Um, and, and by the way, if you guys, um, are hearing in the background and any interesting, you guys have been exposed to a lot of noises with me lately. I ended up recording an intro like on a mountainside in Costa Rica a few weeks ago. <laughs> and then we were in, in like the Bronx the other day. We're, we're actually up in, um, what, uh, Susan and her whole crew called the quiet house, which is still the way along the river north of uh, Manhattan. And you may hear some variation of birds or people or because uh, it's quite literally a beautiful old house just sitting over the water. So that's what's going on if you're wondering in the background. Um, so so as we sit here, um, you, you then kind of train yourself to be okay in a, a massive global spotlight. Um, did you think that that was trainable beforehand? No, I don't think so. Mm. Um, I mean, so there's two aspects to it. You know, one is the aspect of getting over fear for people who have fear of that kind of spotlight. And then the other is the training to actually be able to, you know, speak while you're in the spotlight. Um, and the fear part, I really did not think I would be able to get over because it had been so deep seated for me. Um, but I have, but, but now I really don't feel the fear anymore or very, very marginally. So, I've now come to be, you know, an incredibly deep believer in the power of desensitization, which is just the idea that if you expose yourself to something you fear, um, but you do it in very, very small doses, mm. like one little step at a time, that that's truly the way through a fear and, and that it really can be done. Um, so, you know, my rule of thumb with that is if you think of anxiety levels on a scale from one to 10, you should never be operating in the zone of seven to 10 or, mm-hmm. you know, as rarely as possible because yeah. you go crazy. Like you should be more in the, the four to six range. And that's the range where it's difficult and you're stretching yourself, but you'll probably have a positive experience at the end. And then you can, you know, keep growing from there. So is that um, why it's not uh, below four? Is that it's actually you want to be in a range where you do feel some level of, I don't know how this is going to end. And there's uncertainty and a bit of fear because th- that kind of is a signal that, you know, it there's something to what you're doing? I don't even know if I would say that. I mean, I think it's great if you can live most of your life in the one <laughs> to three range. I, I just think it's, it's like that. Just moving there's to a so, monastery. Yeah. It, it's just that 
uh, for me, and I think for many people, there are things that we want to do in the world. And if we want to do those things, yeah. we have to be willing to withstand being in a zone that's not comfortable. Yeah. Um, no, it's so but, great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I've, I mean, I'm, there was a time where I was so envious where I would see people that just seemed to not feel that at all. And mm -hmm. then you start to talk to them and you're like, no, actually the vast majority of people feel that deeply yes. and, and, you know, it takes a lot out of them and, and they end up building all sorts of scaffolding and tools and strategies. Sometimes they don't even know it, um, that let them to kind of lean into it. So that is so true. And you know, this is probably, it, it sounds like this is something you've experienced in, oh, big in your work because, <laughs> you know, like me, you, you kind of go out and talk in a very honest way about what you feel and about what it means to be human really. Yeah. Um, and so I'm sure you've had this experience. Like, I feel like I'm a confessor for people. So, you know, I go to a conference now and because I am always talking about stuff that I feel vulnerable about, people now come up and tell me about their vulnerabilities. And mm. so I now know like that, it, just as you say, you know, the people who seem to be so shiny and put together and like they've got it all worked out, they're grappling with the exact same things. People just don't talk about it that much. Yeah, it really is amazing. And, it, you know, it's interesting. And on the one hand, I think, um, you know, the intertubes technology has, has, um, made it easier to just kind of find your people and be at home with them. And the mm -hmm. other hand, I think it's also made it easier to sort of um, roll with the assumption that I've got to build sort of a public positioning of myself. And part of that is that I'm at least semi bulletproof or else people won't listen to me and let me help them. Mm -hmm. And then, so, so in a weird way, I wonder if it almost, it opens the possibility of building a larger community, but simultaneously, um, sets up a dynamic where you kind of want to, um, where you feel like you've got to protect a lot more and almost set up a facade and posture a little bit. Um, if you're going to then, you know, have any plans on turning around and leading or potentially building some sort of enterprise around it. Wait, wait, I want to make sure I understand. So yeah. facade and posture. In terms of, you know, there's a, there's, I think there's, um, there's a perception that if you're going to build a public reputation mm -hmm. and then at some point turn around and say, okay, like I've, I can help you mm -hmm. and in some way charge for it, whether it's speaking or building tools or product or services or a company or experiences that you, you've got to present, um, the image that I've got it more dialed in than you. Oh, I see. I see. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it, or else it's like, well, why would I involve myself in anything that you're doing if you're side by side with me? And, um, I think that causes a lot of angst for people because I think my sense is that some people may take that as I need to create a little bit of fantasy mm -hmm. around my reality if I'm going to be able to stay alive doing this. That's really interesting because I, I think you're absolutely right about people feeling that way. And then at the same time, we're living in an era you know, authenticity is now a buzzword. It's overused, yeah. but it's overused for a reason because I think people actually really want and crave authenticity. And you can't really be authentic if you're not willing to talk about stuff like that. You know, so I think of somebody like Brene Brown and her power comes from the fact that she is willing to talk about really what it is to be human. And that's what people are craving now. Yeah. So, I, you know, I, I think the understanding that you can be competent and be vulnerable at the same time is really the key. Yeah. I, that's huge. Um, yeah, I, I think that's huge. And I think also people are yearning just to be around humans. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like to a certain extent, people, you know, will listen to you if, um, you know, you've got something to say that they don't yet know, or you've got a solution to their problem, but also if just, um, they're kind of like, well, they're like me and I want to be around more people like me. Um, and that has value to me. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think it's the antithesis of the culture whose shackles we're kind of now leaving. You know, if you think of classic sort of 1950s IBM hmm. culture of like, everybody's got to look a certain way and we all look the same way. And we're presenting always this visage of unflappable cheer, uh, you know, Nowadays, that feels to us very Stepford and automaton. Yeah. And so we don't trust it. And you need to have trust. Yeah, totally agree. Um, so it just dawned on me 11 minutes into this conversation that there is a possibility that not every person in the world knows about the book that you've written. We should probably actually... <laughs> 
maybe name it and 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 share a little bit about it. And then I, I kind of want to jump back in time with you a little bit. So you wrote a book called Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking or Speaking. Yeah, um, talking. Mm-hmm. And, um, and what it essentially did, well, why don't you tell me, like, what was... A, why did you write this? And what did you, in your mind, what what were you doing by writing it? You know, the idea of the book was just to kind of shine a light on our culture, which I saw then and and still see, although, you know, happily there have been some changes since then, but um, a culture that really has a kind of lopsided view of human nature, um, a culture that says that we really should all be extroverted, you know, that that's where all social and creative value comes from, instead of recognizing that a third to a half the population is introverted, and that many of humanity, many of the great contributions to humanity have come from introverts, because of their quiet cerebral temperaments, not in spite of them. And this was just so obvious to me, I I think, partly because I had grown up in a very scholarly family of introverts. And like, it was, you know, I, I just saw it in my day-to-day life that my dad, for example, is a doctor. He recently retired and he would come home from work every day and have dinner. And then he would like go upstairs and pour over medical journals for hours. Um, and he was known to be a really great doctor. And, and it, like, it was clear to me, you can't actually be a great doctor unless you're willing to sort of do that deep thinking work. Um, I, I knew this in my bones, but, uh, at the same time looked around and saw the way our schools and our workplaces and religious institutions and our culture as a whole, um, was not recognizing what to me was this very obvious truth. So I wanted to shine a light on it. And, you know, the amazing thing to me was, so when I first started working on the book, like I knew that I really believed this and I knew I felt it deeply, but at the time when I first started it actually, you know, it felt like I was working on this weird project hmm. um, because introversion had a kind of stigma to it. Yeah. So it felt weird to like show up at a dinner party and say, yeah, I'm writing a book about introverts. Right. What? What, <laughs> what does that mean exactly? Uh, you know, now it's come to be part of a general conversation. So it's hard to remember that feeling, but it did at the time feel like a funny project to have chosen. Right. Um, but, you know, the... The amazing thing has been like since the book came out, just the thousands and thousands and thousands of letters from people. Um, in some ways, all of them saying the same thing, which is I now feel for the first time that I have permission to be who I am. And I never felt that before. And I always thought I was the only one who felt this way, you know, and then to learn that you're actually part of a, a vast and rather distinguished tribe, I think is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's a profound thing. Yeah, I I can't tell you how many people I referred to or given the book to to either help them understand themselves or parents to help understand a kid. Yes, that they're yes. struggling to to just like figure out like how to. And it's like you know, well, actually, the kid doesn't have to be the way you think they need to be to be completely okay in the world. And and here's a book that's really going to explain like why. Yeah, yeah. No, the implications for parents and children. Uh, I can't even overstate how meaningful it is. You know, the, if, if you could, if you could see some of the letters I get, you know, I get letters from 12 year olds talking about their parents not quite understanding them and the pain that they carry around for that reason. And I get letters from 70 year olds whose parents hadn't understood them when they were 12 and they're still carrying around that pain to this day. And like, I can't stand to even think of it because it's so much unnecessary pain. You know, and it, and often it's coming from well-meaning parents or teachers who want to be equipping their children to live life in what they see perceive to be an extroverted culture, and so they're giving their kids the message that there's something wrong with them, and they'd better conform to this other way of being. And all the kids hear is there's something wrong with me, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you just make a kind of sort of a slight but profound mind shift of this kid is super cool. And yeah, I'm going to give them some tools to cope in situations that might not be their favorite, but look how amazing they are the way they are. That, that changes everything. Yeah. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Good Life Project is sponsored by NetSuite. So I remember when our businesses were just starting to really scale. It was amazing and also added complexity and stress. And the things that I used to do in hours were taking days, too many spreadsheets, too many systems, no single source of truth. If that sounds familiar, you should know these numbers. 37,000. 25 and 1. 37,000 businesses have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash goodlife. That's netsuite.com slash goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash goodlife. You know, I, I wonder to whether to a certain extent, um, the rise of the knowledge worker, um, is is helping in a way because you know there's the myth of the you know the the coder introvert um who sits there with you know like the headphones on just you know like kind of like alone in a corner or or potentially like 30 people you know but but they're in one room but they're in their own unique worlds with their headphones on doing their own thing and then they create the next Facebook or the next Twitter. And so there's almost this mythology of like that personality type is sort of the driving engine of the coolest new things that are evolving in the world. And I wonder if, if, if as that mythology kind of propagates into the world that, that, that maybe gives a, a little bit more permission for people to sort of step into that mode and maybe even for parents to just say, well, okay, my kid's that way. Um, but maybe that's still okay because I can I can actually see I can see a, a path of to you know like whatever your overlay of success is. Yeah, no, I I think that's absolutely right. Um, and what you're I think what you're really getting at is the fundamental importance of role models. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I always say to people, you should you should know you know for yourself, for your child, whomever, you should always have role models available to you who are people who you feel like kind of have your temperament and your way of passing through the world. Mm-hmm. They, they don't even have to be in the same field that you're in, but just somebody who's blazed a path in your type of way before. Um, and so what you're talking about is a whole industry full of these kinds of role models. Um, you know, and you use the word mythology and it, but it's really not a mythology. Yeah, true. Wrong um, word. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, and you know, it's striking. If you go to the TED conference, it's a funny thing. Like people talk about, oh, all these charismatic speakers at TED, but in fact, most of the speakers who 
are on stage at TED are not naturally charismatic people. They're actually just, many of them are introverts. Um, they're usually just people who happen to be passionate about whatever they're doing. And what we're seeing through TED is that passion itself is what carries people. So some of the Silicon Valley legends who you were mentioning are not, they were not the charismatic CEOs that we saw in years past, you know, in the 1950s or 1960s, like very different ways of being. And I don't think we even realize how little now we expect or need people to conform to that larger than life mm. person, persona that we once did. Yeah, I know. I've, I've read some um, sort of leadership literature around, you know, like the charismatic leader. I'm sure you've read a ton of it as well. And it, it really does seem like that was the ideal for, you know, like a window in time. And everyone thought you had to be that person to build something big and substantial and have people lined up to follow you. But it really does seem like even now the research bears out that it's just not true. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's so true. I mean, one of my favorite studies found that charismatic CEOs are better paid than less charismatic CEOs, but they don't actually deliver a better performance. Mm. And to me, that really says it all. Yeah. Um, so you brought up uh, speaking and, and the TED conference, yeah, um, which I guess you've been to a number of times now. Yes, um, yes. And uh, but there was a breakout moment for you also because you spoke at the big TED conference, and for, it was right around the time that the book came out, right, or sh shortly after. Yeah, yeah, it was about a month after. Um, and so, so I remember I was I was prepping for a, a similar talk, um, maybe a year or so after, and I loved what you had done. And I asked you, I said, Hey, did you work with anyone? And you shared a coach that, you know, who I then worked with for a bit. And, and there came a time where I was working with him and he said, you know, like, there's a moment where you've got to sort of do this very physical thing. He's like, I know you're not comfortable doing it, but this is going to be the moment that everybody remembers. There was a moment in your Ted talk <laughs> where you did something that seemed really knowing you a bit really uncomfortable for you. Do you know the moment I'm talking about? No, actually I don't. The cheer? Oh, oh, the cheer. Yes, of course. Talk, talk of to course. me. Talk, talk, yeah. Lay that, like what, what actually happened there? And I'm curious how you felt doing, going to that place on stage in front of both, you know, people who are in the tech conference and then knowing that this would be a sort of globally viewed thing after that. Well, I mean, first of all, I, I didn't really know it would be a globally viewed thing. Like, had I known, I would not have been wearing a black dress, for example. <laughs> um, but you're a New Yorker, so it's almost required. So. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that was incredibly important. So, I, I, Sorry, that was incredibly, like, difficult. Um, so share what, what, what was the moment described? Yeah, so the moment is that I... I I was trying to give the audience the experience of what it had been like to grow up as an introvert in an extroverted world. Um, so I was talking about it, an experience where I had gone to camp and had brought with me my suitcase full of books. And I had kind of imagined that I'd be sitting around in the bunk at camp with my fellow campers, like all of us reading our novels together. Um, and instead I was introduced to this incredibly gregarious, uh, rowdy, world of camp. And on the very first day, we were taught this cheer that we were expected to, to belt out really every day. Yeah. And, um, you know, the cheer went, oh gosh, do I have to do it now? <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't have to belt it out. Share what it was. <laughs> it was a cheer that went R-O-W-D-I-E. That's the way we spell rowdy, rowdy, rowdy. Let's get rowdy. And I'm probably blushing as I say this right now. You can't see that, um, whoever's listening. But um, yeah, I remember, you know, when I, at first I wrote my talk and like, it was very comfortable to sit at my laptop and write that down. And then I looked at my piece of paper and I was like, shit, you've actually got to say this now, mm. like in front of all these people. Can I really do this? Um, so yeah, it was incredibly helpful to practice with uh, my coach's name was Jim Fife. I think that's yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah. 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 Um, and how did you feel actually doing it? Like when you knew the moment was coming, did, were you aware of sort of, you know, or were you just totally cool with it by then? Cause you've practiced it a million times or were you like, ah, this mm, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> it was probably more of the latter. Cause I actually still do that cheer sometimes in yeah. my talks. And I think it's never grown totally comfortable to mm. me. Um, but yeah, I have no memory of that particular time because I, I don't remember actually giving the TED talk. It was like some altered state and it's not in my memory banks anymore. That is so wild. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know I was there. I know I gave it, but 
Right. I don't it's really like, remember it. It's just such immersive focus and concentration. And it's like the flow state where you just, you become the thing. Yeah. Time fugue. Something like that. <laughs> uh, or abject terror or some blend. <laughs> yeah, some blend of that. <laughs> Not so harmonious blend of all of those things. <laughs> or it was just so awful that you blanked it out of your memory for the rest of your life. Um, so that, that also, I think the, the combination of, of that talk, um, creating a huge ripple out into the, uh, you know, the, the world and the book at the same time. Um, you touched on also the fact that, um, you shared a little bit about where, where you came from and your family dynamic when you were a kid. Where'd you actually grow up? I grew up in Long Island. All right. So, um, and you grew up in, uh, so tell me a little bit about what was the family like when you were a kid and what were you like as a kid? Um, so, you know, I had, my parents, my brother and my sister, uh, very loving grandparents. Um, and we were all of us pretty introverted and readerly, I would say, you know, um, yeah, I, it, in my family, I was actually probably the most extroverted of all of us. And so I was always very aware of like the mores of my family, just being different from the mores of my friends' families or of school in general. Um, I was always a kid who had plenty of friends, but always wanted to interact with them one-on-one. -on -one. You know, and I remember, it's funny that camp seems to be the locus of these things. I think just so much happens at camp, but like, I remember being like four years old at camp and like everybody had to gather around and sing that song. If you're happy and you know it, mm -hmm. clap your hands. Yeah. And I remember kind of being pissed off about it and feeling like, you know, I was happy five minutes ago when I was over there playing with my friend. And I'm not happy now that you're making me sing this stupid song. Um, and, and I just often had that feeling of there being this disconnect between what felt to me the ideal way to spend, spend one's time and the way you were told you were supposed to spend it. And, and that kind of became the core of what I wanted to tell people because I, I don't think we can, I don't think it's possible to, state the extent to which introverts constantly feel that their own preference of how to spend time, the simple decision of how to spend your time, uh, they usually feel guilty about or like it's wrong in some mm. way. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it, it really is, is interesting because I grew up with it. I mean, I'm similar orientation to you. Yeah. Um, I, you know, whenever I take a strengths test, my love of learning is always like one or two. And I love, I'm an autodidact, which means I read like a monster to learn. You yeah. Know, I, I, yeah. I have to pace myself. I don't do well in large groups of classrooms and, and it's not so much socially. So I think, I wonder if that sort of like has fed into, you know, it's sort of like a, a circle where there's a lot of feedback mechanisms that create that dynamic. But, um, I don't need a lot. I'm good with solitude. Mm -hmm. I love a small group of people to just yeah. be around. Yeah. Very much like you. I love, you know, like one or two people, three people, small dinner. Like we'll have people over for dinner. I'd much rather do that than meet people at a bar. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you're, you were the person who really actually originally said to me, she's like, she's like, you, you said, um, you know, you understand that, that introverted doesn't mean antisocial. Right. You know, and I still remember the phrase you shared with me and which is, it's more selectively social. Ah, oh, I didn't know I had that phrase. I like it. You did. <laughs> and, and, but that really opened a window for me because I'm like, I, oh, oh, yeah, I actually love being around my people in yeah. the right way at yeah. the right time in the right setting. And when, and, and, and I realized that when, you know, as I built different adventures, one of the coolest things for me, it's not the freedom and control and the money, which, <laughs> doesn't always happen in the world of entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. It's the ability to handpick the people you surround yourself with and yeah. build the culture exactly the way you want. Yeah. To me, that's the magic. And, and, um, and I think, you know, that's one of the things that, um, through reading your work and just knowing you and being friends and having conversations has really enriched my understanding of how to do that in a way that fills me up and also fills up the people that you sort of want to be, you know, together with. Huh? Oh, I love that. I love that. That's so nice to know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the way that I sometimes put that is kindred spirits. Like, I mm. think if you kind of go through the world and look for your kindred spirits, then that's the right way to live, you know? And for some people, they want one or two kindred spirits around them and that's what they need. And some people want to have 50 or 75 and it kind of doesn't matter as long as mm. you've got the people you want. So, which, which brings up this huge question and I don't know if it's answerable, which is, well, I guess it's two questions, really. <laughs> it's it's how do you know when when it's a kindred spirit, and then how do you find them? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I I think 
I don't know if I have an answer to it because yeah. I feel like it's usually so instantaneous. Yeah, it's so apparent and instantaneous um, in my experience. Yeah, so- and that's been mine also. Um, yeah, and and my at least on my side, the answer has been go do things you like to do. Right, um, and you know, like the there's a decent chance that you'll find more of those same people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think it's all, I think it's doing things you like to do. And I think it's also talking about the kinds of things you like yeah. to talk about, you know, like, so I, I will sit around and talk about human nature pretty much. I will never stop. Like I'll never mm. tire of that. So some people really want to talk about that and some people really don't. And that's cool. But, and, and I think you find out pretty quickly, you know, do you share those interests? Do you share an orientation to the world? Yeah, no, totally agree. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. So you're at a point now where we're, we're hanging out here. This is a couple of years out. You um, made this huge explosion into the world, a giant ripple that keeps rippling and rippling and rippling. You spent um, what I think was originally supposed to be your year of speaking dangerously, but um, it, it, it ended up at what? Let's actually talk about that for a second. Yeah, sure. <laughs> because you're launched into the spotlight too from a very private place. And then there's massive demand for you to go out there and share your message. Um, so you created this thing <laughs> that you, you're, you're speaking dangerously. Yeah. What is that? Well, okay. The year of speaking dangerously was actually the year before oh, was this it really? explosion. Yeah. It was ah. really, it was like the year before the book came out and I knew that I was really passionate about it and would want to go out and share the message. And yet I had this problem of being terrified of public speaking. So I was like, what am I going to do? So my year of speaking dangerously was practicing public speaking, like every chance that I could get in these really small doses, you know, until I could get to a point where I was sort of passable at it. Um, And I, 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 you know, I actually, I, I started at this place called the Public Speaking Center of New York, which is amazing. It's led by this guy, Charles DiCagno, 
can't recommend it enough. Um, and it's for people who are not comfortable with public speaking. And, you know, it's almost like a support group and you go to, you go to these sessions and the very first day, if you're really nervous, like you go there, you stand up in front of the group, say your name and sit down. Mm-hmm. And then you go back the next week and maybe you stand up and people ask you, you know, where were you born and where did you go to school? Answer the questions, sit back down. So the idea is like, you're taking it really slowly. So that I, you know, I went through and then I joined Toastmasters and did all this stuff. And that kind of got me to my book publicity moment. Got it. Um, I never realized that the yeah. year was actually the year before. I it was the year before. Together. Yeah. Yeah. That makes so much sense now, actually. Um, yeah. So since then, I mean, it's so crazy. Like, ironically, I've had this whole career as an international public speaker, which like I never, ever would have imagined would be so. Yeah. When yeah. you when you started to say yes to that, in, in, was there anything in your mind that said, okay, uh, I'm going to do this for, you know, like I'm going to, I'll set aside a chunk of time to do this because it's part of what you do. I want to get the message out. It's really good, but I really want to go back to the way it was to like my sort of like quieter life, more, you know, less in the public eye life, you know, at a certain point in time, or were you just kind of like, let's just see where this train goes. Yeah. I think at the beginning, I really did start out with exactly the mentality that you just described, but I guess what happened over time was number one, the discomfort of it kind of melted away. Um, so, you know, it's still like, it takes energy for me to do all that, but I don't have the discomfort, you know, and I'm really able to focus on the passion that I feel for connecting mm-hmm. with the audience at those moments. So I don't know. I think since then the, the, the passion has mostly taken over and I, I, you know, so now that's actually just become kind of a natural part of who I am and what I do. Um, but there's definitely the piece of me that you know, just loved writing. I, I I will always love writing. It's like my great deep love in terms of what I, you know, how, how do I, how, how I spend time. So, and, and I'm not a fast writer, you know, I like to kind of like really go deep with one topic. Um, so there's a part of me that would love to be sitting for hours on end in a library, just researching one topic. And that part of my life is a little bit on hold right now. Hmm. But it also seems like it's on hold because um, you've taken the, the concept, you've taken sort of like the inciting incident, and um, now you're building some really extraordinary things for people um, that it can ripple out into. Can we talk about this? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So basically what happened is, I alluded to this earlier, I started to get these letters. I mean, like so many letters and so many conversations that I would have with people. You know, I, I would go out and give these talks and then... There'd be a book signing and people would come and they would tell me their stories and, you know, so many mothers crying as they talked about the difficulties they had faced parenting quiet children and, and, you know, wanting help and asking, how can I change my child's school? And, um, I would get company leaders saying, how can I change the culture of my company? How can I be a better leader to introverts? Or I'm an introverted leader. How can I understand my strengths better? Like, so all these questions. And I felt like, the book had done its job in raising consciousness of these questions, but more needed to be done to actually implement these ideas within cultures and within structures, social structures. So I decided that I had to start an organization to do something about this. So I've now actually founded a company called Quiet Revolution. It is a mission-based company. Um, I've co-founded it with my longtime friend, Paul Shabetta. And um, our mission is to unlock the power of introverts for the benefit of us all. And we have all kinds of projects that we're working on. You know, we are um, we're <laughs> launching a big global community website. We are going into companies and organizations like NASA, for example, we're working with, uh, as you can imagine, the space agency, agency, (laughs) they have lots of introverts over there, um, and fortune 100 companies. And we're going in and helping them really transform their cultures. And really the idea is to help companies harness the talents of the introverted half of their population and improve communication between the introverts and extroverts so that everybody's working better and more respectfully. Mm. Um, so we're doing that. We, we are starting to work on programs for schools. Um, we're building out a big online course for parents. It's like really aesthetically beautiful and kind of took all the best of our thinking about 
how you can really parent your child well. And we want to just make, we're putting that online. We want to make it available to the world. Mm. So we have all kinds of projects. So, um, yeah, no, that's, um, when you were listing all those different things, something changed in your voice when you talked about the parenting thing. (laughs) That's funny. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't aware of the change in my voice, but I'm also not surprised because all of these are passion projects for me, like really deeply. Um, but the thing about the kids, you know, I'm going to choke up talking about it. Like, yeah, I mean, I, I should have brought some letters to read, but the letters that I get from children in un- unnecessary pain, it makes me crazy. And, and I know there's so many parents out there who really want, like they're the most well-meaning people in the world and they just want the tools to be great parents to their children. And so I feel like if we can give those tools to all these parents, you know, that's like changing one life after another, after another, after another, um, you know, and, and there's interesting challenges that parents have depending on their own temperament. So it, it's of course really obvious to think, um, an extroverted parent might have challenges raising an introverted child because they have trouble empathizing with what that child is actually feeling. You know, they've never experienced it themselves. Um, but introverted parents can have challenges of an entirely different nature. You know, as an introverted parent, you might still be carrying around the pain you experienced as a child. You might be projecting it onto your child who wouldn't otherwise feel it. Um, and you might just be like the whole, uh, the whole uh, question of things like, you know, what do you do when you're, when your child doesn't want to go to a party? Um, those questions might be so fraught for you that you have trouble responding to them in a healthy, low-key way. Mm. So all these things we want to help parents work with. It's almost like, you know, you are, you remember your experience as an introverted kid being forced to go to a party and you think the answer is to take your introverted kid and almost force them into an extroverted mold so they don't suffer the same thing. Exactly. 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 That's Um, exactly it. I had an interesting conversation, um, a year or two back with Eve Branson, um, actually Richard Branson's mom. Ah, okay. Um, and she, she tells the story of how when Richard was very young, I think seven or eight years old or something like that, he was a, a fiercely, what she called fiercely shy kid, you know, mm-hmm. very introverted kid. And, mm-hmm. and I know there's a difference between shy and introverted. Um, so it, it, as a way to almost teach him a lesson and force him to, um, become, uh, well, well, and her, her, her words were something like, you know, it's, it's, it's not really acceptable, um, to be sort of, you know, like socially pulled away from people. That's not the, the appropriate way to be. So <laughs> she tells the story of, um, trying to force him, um, to have to talk to people by, you know, like driving him out to the countryside, dropping him out of the car and saying, find your way home. <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow. wow. <laughs> Which of course, like, in yeah. the, you know, this day and age, yeah, you know, yeah. like she's, you know, the Richard's a, a different generation. She, <laughs> yes. she was around 90, I think when, when we spoke, you know, <laughs> that the child services we call it. It was, it was a very different world. Then. Sure. Um, but, uh, and, and then she, she also shares how the, the experiment backfired horribly that, you know, they came home, he never showed up. They started like getting really upset and, and started driving around everywhere. And they finally found him like hours later, you know, just casually having dinner with a, a local neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> so lesson learned on uh, both sides, I guess. But, um, but yeah, I think just, um, the, just the notion of, of allowing parents and, and kids to interface and understand each other better around it and both accept the way that both are and maybe not agree on certain things, but just understand like that having, you know, anything that to me that creates empathy and compassion is a yeah. good thing. And I think the heartbeat, that's so much of what your work is about. Yeah, no, that that's exactly the idea of it, you know, and, and just simple mind shifting things like when raising an introverted child, I always tell parents, <clears throat> excuse me, is um, quieter children, whether they're shy or introverted or both, they often have longer runways that they have to travel down before they take off and fly. That's just the way it is. And so, and it's fine. It's actually really no big deal once you understand that. But it's so key for those kids to know that you're okay with their longer runway and that you're going to be there with them on the longer runway. So the answer is not, oh, they're more uncomfortable. Therefore, you know, you get to stay home. Like you don't want to, you don't want to overprotect them, but you also want to go with them, um, f- for these smaller 
steps, smaller steps that might take longer and just be there with them and have them know that you think they're cool. I mean, really all of this, like I, I, I could tell you, and we do in the course give you words you can use to reframe mm. experiences with your kids. But in some ways, the words don't really matter because your kid is going to pick up whatever you feel about them. They will pick it up. So the real work is rethinking what you, what you feel about your child in this culture. Yeah. I think that's such an important distinction. You know, <laughs> you're so right. It, kids read you like a book. It doesn't matter what's coming out of your mouth. If like there's just cognitive distance in the way that you actually, your energy and the way you relate to them. Yeah. Yeah. Over. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So one thing is if you are interested in checking out our website, it's at quietrev.com and it's a community website and we would love to have you. And the other thing is, I just want to say a big thank you to my good friend, Jonathan, um, who's just one of the great menches of our time and thinkers of our time. And uh, you all are so lucky to be part of his tribe. So mm -hmm. thank you. Thank you. All right. Last question. Um, so the name of this project is Good Life Project. So uh, if I offer that term out to you to live a good life, what does it mean to you? Uh, good life. You know, it's a life. It's, it's, it's funny. It's hard to answer that question without resorting to cliches, I think, because the first place I'm going is, you know, it's a life of love and it's a life of passion for doing the work that you most want to do. You know, I, I feel like um, Freud was probably wrong about a lot of things, but one thing he really got right was that love and work is everything. So that to me is a good life. Thank you. You're welcome. Hey, I really enjoyed that conversation. If you found it valuable as well, um, would so appreciate if you would just head on over to iTunes, take a couple of seconds, and uh, let us know. Share, um, share a review or a rating. Always honest. And um, if you found this episode, the conversation, valuable, and you think other people, maybe friends or family, would enjoy it and benefit from it, go ahead and share it with them as well. And as always, if you want to know what's going on with us at Good Life Project, then head over to goodlifeproject.com. And that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Fields, signing off for Good Life Project. <laughs>